Amen. You can have a seat. I don't know if you've if you've seen, but at times there will like take a little spin around the internet, a video of someone who's running like insanely fast on a very high powered treadmill. And so the video will start and you can like see or hear that the treadmill is already running at like max speed. And there's someone like Tyreek Hill or Mecole Hardman or Sammy Watkins or Clyde Edwards-Alaire or Demarcus Robinson. We have a very fast football team in Kansas City. They're standing on like the side of the treadmill and they kind of like hit their foot on it a couple times. Then they just jump on there running full speed for like six or seven seconds while someone stands at the back in case they go flying off. And then they jump off. We're gonna hit the ground kind of sprinting like that this morning. And so I just wanna jump right to, here's the main point today. The main point is this that's central to the life of a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is the necessity of relationship. Central to the life of a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is the necessity of relationship. What we're gonna do this morning as we wrap up this series, just kind of refreshing and rehashing who we are as a church and what that means, is that we're gonna look at the final characteristic that we've not touched yet. And that's that a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is humbly unified. Like we've done over the last few weeks, we'll define that term. We'll take a look at that concept and its implications from a certain passage of scripture. So if you've got a Bible with you, hard copy or on your phone, you wanna open up to Romans chapter 12. We're gonna use the whole thing, verse one all the way to 21 this morning in order to take a look at what it means to be humbly unified. And then we'll answer two questions. If we as a church want to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are humbly unified, what does that mean we're committing to as a church? And what does that idea call each of us to as individual followers of Jesus Christ? Let me start with a definition. I'm going to give you a long definition and then a short one. Here's the long definition. That having been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus are brought into the family of God, which is known as the church. The worldwide body of believers is to be both diverse yet unified. That diversity comes from being a global entity made up of people who are all made in God's image, different races, ethnicities, nationalities, and socioeconomic backgrounds, people with different talents, personalities, and gifts. Knitting this diverse group together is the overriding unifying gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Though local churches may differ on minor issues within the lived out expression of following Jesus, there is to be joyful unity over the large truths of the gospel message. That unity lived out and expressed in humble, devoted love, service, and care to one another in the context of a local church portrays a picture of the gospel to the world. That's the long definition. Let me give you a short one. Those who are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ are held together by the blood of Jesus in the family of God. When we talk about being humbly unified, we're talking about being a people, both as a local church and in the global church, who are held together by the blood of Jesus in the family of God. That reality has massive implications for the way that it is that we are to live in relationship with one another, both as local bodies and as a global body. That theme weaves its way through scripture all over the place. You can find it in the Old Testament. You can find it all throughout the New Testament. I'm just going to give you a few passages in the New Testament that speak to this before we zero in on Romans 12. Hebrews 10 says, let us watch out for one another 
to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Ephesians in chapter two says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In chapter four, Ephesians says this, therefore I, that's Paul, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And then how does he define that? Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Peter writes about it this way in 1 Peter chapter three, finally be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays that the church would have this kind of unity. Paul talks about it in basically all of his letters. We're gonna look at Romans 12, not because it's the most comprehensive passage on this particular topic or not because any other passage in the, in the New Testament would be insufficient in any way, but we're gonna look at Romans chapter 12 because it gives us a chance to recap what we've been doing over the last four weeks and then to finish off this series by talking about what it looks like to be humbly unified. So if you've got a Bible open, I'm gonna start in Romans chapter 12, verse one, and we'll work our way all the way to the end of the chapter. Everything in Romans up to uh, chapter 12 is an explanation of the gospel. The book of Romans is like one long linear explanation. It's very dense at times about what it means to be justified, to be made right before God, thanks to the giving of his son. The kind of central idea is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified freely by his grace. That's what Romans 1 all the way through the end of chapter 11 is about. And then in chapter 12, Paul says this, therefore, because of that justification, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. We started this series by saying that at LCF, we want to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are gospel-centered, who live with God's mercy in view. That everything that we do, no matter what situation or in what context within our lives, the mercy of God, the goodness of the gospel would be at the forefront of who we are. God in his mercy gave his son for us. That gospel reality, that grace is what saves us. That gospel reality, that grace is what sanctifies us. That gospel reality, that grace is what will one day glorify us. In view of the gospel, the life of a follower of Jesus means that we keep on viewing the gospel. We don't ever stop. We don't graduate from it. We don't move beyond it. We cling to it in everything. And that relationship is central to who a follower of Jesus is. Central to the life of a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is the necessity of a relationship the core relationship that brings us into the body of Christ is a relationship with Jesus, received by the grace of God through faith in what he did for us on the cross. Our commitment here, if you remember, as it relates to being gospel-centered, is that we will default to truth. 
We will default to truth in our preaching, in our programming, in our counseling, in the way that we view the things that go on inside the walls of this church and outside the walls of this church. We will hold up the truth of scripture as, as what it is that lays the foundation and the grid for the way that we view everything in life. It will, scripture will push us back toward the gospel. It will remind us of what is ultimately true and it will help us rightly understand everything that goes on in life. Because we want to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are gospel-centered, we will default to truth. The second half of verse one says what our relationship, what our side of the relationship to God ought to look like. We present our bodies, as the CSB calls it, lives might be what your translation says, to the Lord. We respond to him in his grace and his mercy by giving our lives back to him. And it's mercy and grace that compel us to do so. Look at verse two. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's pursuing holiness. This core relationship with Jesus transforms us. We're to be molded into the image of Jesus Christ by the grace of God through the working of the Holy Spirit. To pursue holiness, as Kurt said a couple weeks ago, means that we pursue Christ. And in pursuing Christ, we are molded, shaped into his image. This process will be made complete when we receive the goal of our salvation at the end of all things and we're glorified for all of eternity. But until then, we grow. Because we want to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we are going to value growth and growth is important there. Why? Because we'll never be perfect on this side of eternity. We can pursue holiness with all of our might and with all of our energy as we chase after Christ and we'll never be perfect on this side of having been glorified. And so that means as followers of Jesus, that there's nothing to lose in being honest about the places where we wrestle with sin, where we fall short because of our sin. Why? Because there's no sin that could come to light in my life that Jesus has not already forgiven, that he does not already know the full depth of. And the people around me have the same reality going on. So I can be honest about my own sin, pursue Christ as he pursues me in the middle of that and allow the Holy Spirit to soften the edges, to smooth out what's rough and marked by my flesh and mold me increasingly into the image of Jesus. We're all growing. Whether it's the person up here on the platform preaching or leading worship or someone seated in the seats on Sunday morning, leading a small group, serving in Kids Point, we're all growing. We want to be able to champion that, offer opportunities where people can learn more about what it is to grow in relationship with Christ and in holiness. But we also want to be honest and humble about the reality that no one is perfect on this side of glory. This verse goes on. So that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Here's the beauty of living with the gospel at the center and defaulting to truth in all things. We don't ever have to guess about what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. It's not a mystery. He doesn't hide it from us. He will make himself known to the ends of the earth. He will come back end sin, bring righteousness, bring justice, and reign for all of eternity. He will use his people to make his name and his glory known to all the nations of the earth. And he has a purpose and a plan for each and every one of us inside of that. And so we're mission-driven. 
we point the rest of the world to their need for that core relationship with Jesus Christ. We have that message. Like Joe Stewart said three weeks ago, it's part of our very identity to be new creation ambassadors. Being mission-driven is not something that we do. It's who we are. We are called and commanded to speak the message of the gospel, but it ought to be an overflow of our identity as followers of Jesus. If the gospel is at the center of my life, it gives me new identity, a new identity that's found only in Christ. And as I live out of that identity, the message of the gospel ought to just spill from our lips all the time. Why? Because if I'm living out of that new identity and I have the gospel at the center, I can't help but live in, re- in response to the fact that eternity is real. And the reality of that eternity ought to compel me. As a church, we're committed to doing ministry in light of the reality of eternity. Because we want to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are mission-driven, we're gonna do ministry in light of eternity. And each and every one of us as followers of Jesus ought to live life in light of eternity. Not only is God going to uh, use missions in order to make his name known, he also wants his people to be disciple makers. That happens in relationship. Making disciples means we engage in relationships with Christ in view. We're to be intentional about the way that we live, helping others pursue Jesus as we pursue Jesus. Like T.A. said last week, we ought to be like Peter, jumping out of the boat in order to run to Christ. And as we're jumping into the water in order to run to Jesus, we're bringing other people along with us. Our faith is to multiply into the lives of others. As a church, we are committed to equipping the people of our church with that multiplication in mind. Two verses there containing four of the five characteristics that we've defined ought to mark a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. All of them happen in view of God's mercy, with a gospel at the center. And then look at verse three. Four is how it starts. Anytime you see that in scripture, it means because or with that in mind or in light of. And then Paul goes on and he's gonna talk about for the rest of chapter 12, how the church lives in relationship with itself in light of the mercy of God. So if you've got Romans 12 open there, I'm gonna read from verse three down to verse 10, and then we'll go back and kind of point some things out. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. In giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Paul gives this incredible picture of what it looks like to live a life that's just dedicated, literally set apart as a sacrifice to God. In view of his mercy, offer your lives. 
presented to him as a sacrifice, not being conformed to the pattern of this world or this age, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in that, you'll know the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And then where does he turn right after that? To the fact that you cannot do that alone. You cannot live that life on an island by yourself as a follower of Jesus. You do so in relationship, in relationship with one another. And the picture that Paul paints is a picture of humble unity not thinking more highly of ourselves than is sensible in light of the gospel, not forgetting that we're a part of a larger body that's interdependent and gloriously interconnected. So I wanna work back through verses three to 10 and just point out five concepts that help us have a healthy understanding for what humble unity looks like in the context of the church. The first one is this, that unity defines our loyalty. Look at verse five. In the same way, We who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. If you're looking at an uh, an NIV or an NLT translation, your translation will say that we belong to one another. Some translations say that we are part of one another. The CSB that uh, we use from up here on Sunday morning says that we're members of one another. What's the key there? Our unity in Christ defines who we are chiefly loyal to. First and foremost, if the mercy of God is in view and we're offering our lives to him, we're chiefly loyal to Christ. We who are many are one body in Christ. In view of God's mercy, present your lives to him. We're chiefly loyal to the Lord. But then who else does verse five say that I belong to? Individually, we are members of one another. We belong to one another. We're part of one another. If there's one thing, one reminder the church could use right now, it's that we belong to each other. And in America, that flies in the face of everything that we kind of grow up thinking in terms of our own independence and our own individuality and the sort of like supremacy of me doing my thing while you do your thing. And we don't need to like intersect on that at all. The Bible paints a picture that that is just fundamentally not true. We literally belong to one another in the church. Our loyalty as followers of Jesus is first and foremost to Christ, but also in a local church and in the global body of Christ, we belong to one another. And I wanna pause there for just a second. One of the things that uh, this pandemic has done is that it's moved a lot of people to engaging with church online. For a season, that was because we stopped having services out of care for one another and out of care for our community. Now we... Uh, shifted everything online. You can find pretty much any church you want via Facebook or their website on a Sunday morning. That's not inherently bad. It's a wonderful gift of technology. Enabled it uh, enabled us to continue to interact with one another while we weren't having services. But what it has done is that it's facilitated something that already existed within the American church. And that's just the ability to not necessarily belong to one local church, but to just like listen to a sermon from one place or kind of cherry pick from multiple churches. There is something beautiful and necessary about followers of Jesus committing themselves to a local church, belonging 
to that place. Linking arms with brothers and sisters in your community that you might not have linked arms with in any other capacity, but because you've been brought together by Christ, you commit to one another and you say, you know what, for better or worse, despite all the sin and brokenness that exists within the walls of the church because humans are sinful and broken, despite the imperfections of our leaders and the things that we might disagree with, I'm committed to you. I literally belong to you. I'll make sacrifices to walk in relationship with you and to be part of a local church with you. And it ought to be difficult to walk away from that. One of the things that this pandemic has done is that it's made it very easy to just slip out of that local church connection. But we can see in Jesus and be reminded that he gave himself for us. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You belong to Jesus. He gave himself that you might belong to him, but also he gave himself and in a way belongs to you. And following that model, we can belong to one another, which means it will require sacrifice at times. There will be times where my sensibilities or my desires don't win the day. And I can look at my brothers and sisters in a local church setting and say, you know what, it's okay because it's more about us in relationship than it is about whatever that decision was. We belong to each other. Our unity defines our loyalty. Next, unity does not demand uniformity. Back up to verse four. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. We're not all the same. Coming to saving faith through the grace of God does not erase our uniqueness or our differences. What it does is it begins to battle against our flesh that would want to allow those differences or allow those uniquenesses to divide us. Our flesh wants to brand different as wrong. The church down the road that believes differently on some open-handed, secondary, minor theological issues, they're wrong. The person who grew up with a different style of worship than me, maybe I grew up and we sang hymns not using instruments. And those places that have guitars and lights and loud music, they're wrong. This person that thinks differently, differently than I do on this particular issue, they're wrong. This person that grew up in a different cultural background that gives a, a totally different expression of worship to the way that they gather with the church, they must be wrong. That's what our flesh wants to do. I say this carefully, but I also mean it fully. That fleshly desire in us to brand different as wrong within the context of the local church, I believe is a ploy of Satan from the literal pit of hell. What's one way to make the church look really unappeasing to the watching world? Just have them argue amongst themselves all the time. Satan knows that and he knows that our flesh is very prone and very quick to give in to that. You can see it highlighted in full display in our society right now. People with different thoughts, different cultural norms, different viewpoints or backgrounds or experiences or history. And rather than trying to find unity, would rather demand uniformity. And because they can't get uniformity, they'll just brand what's different as wrong and then fight with each other. 
In the gospel, thanks to the work of Jesus, we have unity but not uniformity, which means the other side of this statement is true, that unity displays glorious diversity. Look at the second half of verse six. He's talking about gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. Uh, If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Uh, Showing mercy with cheerfulness. You can find other places, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that talk about diversity in terms of Holy Spirit given spiritual gifts. Those are different within the body of Christ to the glory of God. You can find places in scripture that talk about diversity in terms of ethnicities or races. And those differences within the body of Christ are different to the glory of God. You can find places in scripture that talk about the differences between male and female. Within the body of Christ, those differences are to the glory of God. Look around the world. Look within this room or think about the church. There's an infinite number of varying combinations of interests, talents, and abilities And those are different to the glory of God. Different temperaments, dispositions, and personalities. Introverts and extroverts. Differences in Enneagram numbers or Myers-Briggs combinations of letters that help us understand our personalities. Those all exist within the church and those differences are to the glory of God. And one of the challenges within the life of a congregation is to love that diversity not in theory, but in actual practice. To not just say, I appreciate that there's this full range of people within the body of Christ, but to actually love that diversity when you bump into the person that's everything that you are not. They're loud, you're quiet. They're an extrovert, you're an introvert. They really want to uh, you know, speak boldly and boisterously, you're a little more quiet and withdrawn. And when those two things come smashing into each other or whatever differences we could come up with, we don't just love the diversity in theory, we love it in practice. When there's someone who doesn't look like us sitting in the seat next to us, we love that diversity, not in theory, but in practice. In our unity, there's glorious diversity. And the more diversity we see, the more complete an understanding we have of the unfathomable greatness and glory of God. And when we're as a church able to maintain unity in diversity, we portray a beautiful picture of the gospel to the watching world. It's easy for people who are the same to get along. It says something magnificent about the power and the glory of God in the gospel when people who are diverse find unity. Number four, Unity develops from blood-bought family. Keep reading with me in verse nine. Let love be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Joe mentioned this uh, three or four weeks ago, but we have this new identity in Christ. We are new creation ambassadors And we all share that identity. Rooted in Christ, made new by Christ, ambassadors to speak the beauty of Christ. And we all share that together. And he purchased that for us with his blood on the cross. I'll have biological family here over the course of the morning. My parents were at first service, at third service, my aunt and my uncle are coming. We are very different 
I'm very different than my parents. I'm very different than my aunt and uncle. My mom and her sister are very, very different. When we all get together at like Thanksgiving and we sit around the table, sometimes the conversations end up at these points where we're all looking across the table thinking to ourselves, am I going here or am I not? And then dinner is over, the day is over, we get in the cars and we go home and we just love each other because we're family. So it is to be in the body of Christ. The unity we have with one another is a visual expression of the unity that we have in Jesus. He gave us that unity by offering himself at the cost of his blood on the cross and now we share it with each other. There's a shared identity that supersedes all of our possible differences and that shared identity pulls us together more strongly than anything else could pull us apart. That shared identity is that we are blood-bought family. Last, unity determines relational functionality. I'm gonna start reading in verse 11. I'm gonna do this fairly quickly. Paul does this very quickly. We could take what what happens really from verse nine down to 21, and we could take every phrase and separate it out into like its own sermon. And we could talk about everything that it means to like rejoice in hope. That would be fruitful and useful. It's also fruitful and useful to just see these things listed out almost in like bullet points. That's the way Paul does them. And what is he doing? He's defining what it looks like for the church to interact with one another. Do not lack diligence and zeal. So we link arms and we're zealous for the glory of God and the glory of the gospel. Be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction. Whatever the world could throw at the church and however that tries us, puts us under a trial or persecutes us, we would bear patiently with that alongside one another. We're persistent in prayer for one another. Share with the saints and their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. There should be peace, not just inside the walls of a local church, but in the global church. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it's written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. What should it look like when the church interacts with one another? What, how does the relationship function? This is not a complete list, but Paul says that relationship is full of rejoicing, patience, persistence in prayer, generosity, hospitality, blessing, empathy, compassion, harmony, humility, forgiveness, thoughtfulness, peace, grace, mercy, righteousness, and justice. You read through that list and you think to yourself, Oh my goodness, how could I ever do this? Well, we, we had better be pursuing holiness, right? Because in the words of Jared C. Wilson, being a peaceable, gentle person requires a vigorous violence against your flesh. 
Everything inside of you at times will scream against being patient, being generous, being hospitable, being empathetic, being compassionate, living in harmony, having humility, offering forgiveness, being thoughtful, being a person of peace, offering grace, extending mercy, living with righteousness, pursuing justice. The model of these things in their perfection is in Christ. And lest we get discouraged by the thought that we could never live them out, we must remember that the empowerment to live them is also in Christ. He doesn't just give us a model, ascend up into heaven, and then say, do the best job you can, and if you do good enough, you'll get to come and be with me one day. He lives them out perfectly, dies on the cross, ascends up into heaven, sends his Holy Spirit into his people, and now walks alongside us, empowering us to do vigorous violence to our flesh that we might live in, in unity and in harmony with one another. This humbly unified way of living is not to be a heavy burden that we bear, but an easy yoke that Christ is bearing on our behalf. The call to pick up your cross and follow in the way of Jesus sounds daunting until you remember that he has and he is carrying that cross on our behalf. Unity sounds difficult until we remember that we already have it. He's already brought us into himself. He's blood-bought a global, diverse family for himself. And so we work for something that is already a reality. You could no more kick someone out of the family of God than you could pluck them out of Jesus' nail-scarred hand. And so we live in unity with one another. And that unity defines our loyalty does not demand uniformity, rejoices in glorious diversity, develops from the fact that we are blood-bought family and determines how it is that we relate to one another. What does that mean we're committing here? Central to the life of a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is the necessity of relationship. It is relationship with Jesus that brings you into the family of God and it is relationships with the church that ought to make it so that we live uh, pursuing and lifelong committed lives to Jesus Christ. The body of Christ helps us to do that. So our commitment as a church, as a staff, and as a leadership team means, and I chose this first word very carefully, we will shove you toward relationships. And I mean shove. You choose to make yourself known to this church staff and leadership team, and we will shove you into relationships. We'll shove you into relationship with Jesus, try to push you closer and closer and closer to him, and we'll also shove you into relationship with others within our body. Thank Mama Bird and Baby Bird learning how to fly. There comes a day where Mama Bird says, hey, this nest can't hold us all forever, and just kicks the bird out in hopes that it flaps its wings and flies. If you make yourself known to us, and I recognize that in a church our size, you could slip in week in and week out, kind of sit yourself in the back and never make yourself known to us. One of the blessings that this pandemic has given us is that you have to register to be here. We seat you. So now we know your name and where you sit. But if you choose to make yourself known to us, we will shove you toward relationships. Our programs do some degree of transmitting knowledge and information. 
our programs offer some degree of discipleship. Like Tim Adams said last week, the real work of discipleship happens in relationship. Our programs offer help and hope and healing. We want them to do that. But more than anything, our programs, be they for children or for adults, provide space for relationship. You choose to make yourself known to us, we will shove you toward relationship with Christ and with others. We will do that continually in all things. That's the commitment we make to you as a church. What does this call us to? Well, that calling as individual followers of Jesus is simple and difficult. It calls us to move toward and maintain humbly unified relationships with other believers at all times. To move toward relationship. Yes, you'll find yourself in spaces where there's friction in relationship with another believer. It doesn't mean that all of your relationships are always going to be conflict-free. But it does mean that our calling as followers of Jesus is to move toward those relationships even when they're hard. To work to maintain unity even when it feels fragile. Humble sacrifice is to mark our vertical relationship to God and humble unity is to mark our horizontal relationships within the church. While we're going to work for that as a church, it's on each and every one of us to uphold it as individuals as well. It means we can humbly recognize our own sin and how it affects people and also be patient with the sin of others and how it affects us when we sin against someone in the church, and we will. And that sin puts the relationship at risk. Humble unity means that we go back with humility and seek forgiveness. Repent. Seek to maintain or regain unity. When someone sins against us, and they will, and it feels like that puts the relationships or our unity at risk, we appropriately open up ourselves to offering forgiveness, to reconciling. Humble unity means that we not only allow for differences of thought and opinion, differences of preference or culture and background, different experiences and gifts and talents, but within the bounds of biblical truth, we rejoice in those differences. We allow those differences and diversities to point to the glory of God. Humble unity means that we make loyalty to Christ the main thing while we encourage one another to do the same. Humble unity means that we stand at the foot of the cross. We look at the Savior in front of us and the brother or sister that's standing behind us. And even though that person might be someone we never would have come into contact with were it not for Jesus, we recognize that they're blood-bought family. And while we stand at the foot of the cross and look at the Savior, we're able to say, this is amazing. And we mean both Jesus on the cross and the blood-bought family that we stand in its shadow and worship alongside. What does it mean to walk in humble unity? It means that when everything seems like it's falling apart, and we don't know where to turn. The centrality of relationship in our lives means we actually know exactly where to turn. We turn to the cross where we find the living hope of Jesus Christ and we turn to the church where we find that living hope looking back at us with mercy and grace and love and compassion and empathy and generosity and hospitality with a kind of mercy, grace, love, compassion, empathy, generosity, and hospitality that reminds us of Jesus Christ himself. In the shadow of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, Romans 12, 1, we can do no other than to live humbly unified lives. I want to end with a quick story. My wife and I recently were watching an episode of Chef's Table. 
And recently this series that follows chefs in their restaurants and the delicious food that they made has done like a four-part series that's all about barbecue. So we're watching the first episode of the Chef's Table's Barbecue and it's following a restaurant in Texas, just east of Austin, Texas called Snow's Barbecue. And at Snow's Barbecue, there is a pit master there who uh, has been smoking barbecue for like 50 years plus of her life. She goes by the name Miss Tootsie. Yeah. Um, Miss Tootsie and her husband started smoking barbecue together when they uh, were young. They started a, a business doing this. They would uh, cut meat and smoke it for people in their community. And then Miss Tootsie ended up working at this place called Snow's Barbecue. One day, Miss Tootsie's husband, Wyatt, had a stroke. And the end of his life came pretty quickly at that point. He ended up on hospice and then he passed away. And while Wyatt was on hospice, they found out that their son, Hershey, had brain cancer. Miss Tootsie, working at Snow's at this point, had uh, been brought back into a relationship with her son, Hershey, because he had started working alongside her. And they had been able to reconcile a lot of differences and a lot of hurts over the years while smoking barbecue together. Wyatt passes away and then Hershey passes away. And there's an interview with Miss Tootsie toward the end of this episode. And she says that Hershey passed away on a Tuesday and they did the services for him on Sunday. And my, my wife and I are sitting on the couch and we're both kind of like facing the television and men, you'll probably understand this entirely. I'm starting to cry, but I, I can't look at my wife because I don't want her to know it. You know, I'm crying over Miss Tootsie's barbecue, right? And they're doing an interview. And Miss Tootsie says this, through my whole life, I had always felt very independent. After Wyatt and Hershey passed away, I learned that I had to call on someone to help me. I felt a lot of support. I feel a lot of support when I'm down and out. I feel a connection. I really do. Over the course of this episode, they had shown Miss Tootsie at church a few times. She finished that statement by saying this, It's the close-knit barbecue family. They hold me up. They walk with me. I have nothing against barbecue. I have nothing against the relationships that can come over food. I have nothing against the relationships that can come from youth sports or from your local CrossFit gym. I have nothing against the relationships that you have at work or with your family friends. If you're in college, I have nothing against the relationships that you might find in a sorority or fraternity or some other place. But there's something fundamentally different about the church. Those relationships are fundamentally different. And when everything falls apart in our lives, can we receive love and care from places and people outside of the church? Absolutely. But there is something different when the blood-bought family of Jesus comes rushing to your aid and they bring with them not only empathy and compassion, but the power and the grace of the gospel. Humble unity lived out in the body of Christ is transformational in a person's life. It's one of the places where it's safe for our sin to be exposed and we can be carved into the image of Jesus. It's one of the places where we speak the grace and the mercy of Christ to one another. We come together and we worship a living hope in Jesus Christ. And when it feels like we can't do it, the body of Christ looks back at us and says, yes, you can. And I'm here to do it with you. Blood-bought family. At Liberty Christian Fellowship, we want to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ who live in that kind of humble unity. Amen?
Amen. Let's sing together.